Time for security. Now, we got a lot to talk about. Not just coffee, not just vitamin D, not just health, but even some security news. The new Microsoft updates for uh, Patch Tuesday. We'll talk uh, a lot about Speedy and answer 13 questions from you, our listeners. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 344, recorded March 14th, Pi Day, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 139. Security Now is brought to you by Ford, featuring curve control to help protect against crashes on curves. Look for curve control in the 2013 Ford Taurus and learn more at Ford.com slash cars slash Taurus. It's time for Security Now. To protect yourself online, Mr. Steve Gibson is here, our explainer-in-chief. This is episode 344, and we thought we only really would have enough security news for about a dozen shows. Hey, (laughs) were we wrong? Hey, Steve. Hey, Leo. It's great to be with you again, as always. And you know, normally before we begin, I ask you if you're recording, and I didn't ask you this time. I am recording, sir. Okay. I haven't that, forgotten good. to record this show in ages. And actually, except for the live viewers, everyone listening already knows the answer to that question when you think about it. But uh, That's true. That's true yeah. because it's recorded. Because they wouldn't be hearing it if the answer <laughs> yeah. were not yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the good, the good news is I am. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny you, you asked that because a couple of weeks ago we did forget to record uh, Game On, which is a very expensive, elaborate show with expensive hosts and expensive production values. And the whole thing was not recorded. Oh boy, my heart broke. And you, you, you uh, when we connected initially here, you said Happy Pie Day. Yeah, and it's not just because I have a pecan pie in my hot little hands. Uh, it is actually because this is three point one four that we're recording on. Actually, uh, three point one four. One five in 2015 will be the really the true Pi Day, won't it? Ooh, Ooh. this is only three point one four one two. But the three and years I guess will be the real one. Way way back in three point one four one five nine something <laughs> fifteen. Like, but that, that, did they even know about Pi? They I probably guess they weren't aware <laughs> they of the of the significance of that date. <laughs> they didn't know. You know, uh, they actually do celebrate Pi Day now in schools. And I, before the show, my daughter Abby, who's who's now uh, nineteen, came in, and she in fifth grade they had a contest in fifth grade. So what was that? Eight years ago, uh, for who could memorize Pi to the most places, and she just ripped it off. About I don't know, it was about twenty five, thirty places. She says, "I'm not sure about the last few places." <laughs> Um, the one who won knew it to 50 places, five zero places. Spray yeah, we had a guy in high school who would annoy us. It's by, annoying. Uh, it's annoying. It, it, it's, you know, the first time, it's fascinating. 
Second time, it's like, okay, yeah, Rick, we have already heard you well, do that. Well, that's why we have Pi Day. Once a year, on, on March 14th, you get to do it. So happy <laughs> Pi Day. And you know what the best part about Pi Day is? We all get to have pie. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, there's a new uh, pie shop around the corner, the All-American Pie Company. Uh, before you us. eat that, Leo, yes. before you eat that, oh dear, you may want to you may want to listen to some of my news. Oh toward... dear, oh dear, oh dear. Well, we are having pie for for lunch in the entire Twit Brick House. Uh, well, Hundreds yeah. of pies, but maybe you better tell us why. Anyway, we've got uh, news, and this is also a question and answer episode. Uh, so we have uh, questions for you from our audience. We got a bunch. I got thirteen, which is more than usual because some are just little announcements and updates and things. So some of them are going to go quick. Uh, but there were, I just kept running across interesting tidbits that I thought, oh, I have to share that. Oh, I have to share that. So, <laughs> well, let's get a lot started. Of sharing. Let's get okay. going. What's, what's, is there anything big happening in security this morning? Is anyone sponsoring this show, by the way? Yes, Ford, the Ford Motor ah. Company. Why? We'll talk about them in a, in a, yeah, in a little bit. We got bit. time. We got time. Okay. Uh, okay. So, first of all, I got so carried away with the technology of Speedy that. I failed to update myself on the deployment of Speedy. And so, of course, I was deluged with tweets from people who said, hey, Steve, thanks for the info. Now I know what it is that my Chrome browser has had since last April. Uh-huh. And it's like, uh, oh, that's nice. Well, we talked a little um, bit about that, about enabling it and everything. Well, yeah, and, and during the show, we saw that it was there, but in fact it has been, and Google has deployed it throughout their entire server farm. I saw something, but it was a bit dated, that talked about how Maps might not yet be using Speedy, but all the other regular Google services do. There is a a funky Chrome colon slash slash URL you can put in, which will show your Speedy sessions, and sure enough, if you go poke around Google anything for a while and then go look at this and then go open a tab and, and put this this speedy sessions URL in, you see a, an enumeration of all of the connections which were speedy enabled between your browser and Google. And just last week, Twitter added speedy support to their site. So oh. uh, also, Firefox 11 has just been released, and it has Speedy in it, but it's not enabled by default. So people who are staying current with Firefox, uh, I'm famously not. I'm just staying where I am, back on three-point-something. But people who are, who are getting 11, I'm sure somewhere in there – oh, in fact, I've got it in my notes a little bit later um, – is where you go. you got to go into the about colon config and find it. But you can turn speedy support on. Um, let's see, what else do I have? Oh, um, uh, it will will be enabled by default in Firefox 13. So they're putting it in 11, but not turning it on to sort of step into this gently. Um, the Kindle Silk browser in the Kindle Fire has been using speedy all along. Was that the, silk of, the silky, you know, the speed up stuff in Silk, or was there other stuff as there's other stuff, too, that, that they're explicitly doing their own stuff. But when they were looking for performance, they thought, hey, let's use speedy connections between the Amazon back end and our, our, our Kindle Fire. So, so that's there. Um, also, there's, there's a mod speedy 
um, module for Apache that's been around since December of last year, so only for about four months, but still it exists. Now, it's worth noting, though, that to say you have Speedy and to actually be getting the advantages are two different things. So I don't want people to get too excited nor too disappointed if they turn it on and don't see things speed up. The point being that if you think about what we learned last week, using Speedy, that is leveraging Speedy, requires much more than just changing the protocol and announcing at each end that, oh, we're going to use a Speedy connection. You, 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 And this is why I'm a little suspicious of, for example, the depth of implementation that Apache may have gone to. I know I'm not meaning to cast any aspersions on Apache. Maybe they really did re-engineer their server around Speedy, but my point is that's what it kind of takes. You, you need to add a whole bunch of server-side intelligence to back up the support of the protocol in order to, for example, provide, to, to look at the page you're sending out and then to provide client hints of the resources that the client is probably going to want or to automatically be sending down to the client in advance using the server push features the things you know the client is going to ask for. So, so just saying that, well, yes, we're speedy enabled doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the same kind of performance that Google's testing did. And you know on Google's benchmarking, they would have taken advantage of all that the Speedy protocol had to offer because that's, of course, what they were trying to measure. So my guess is that we're going to see, and I'm first, first of all, I'm super happy that this is happening because this is just represents the evolution of the web. Also, it's worth noting that Google's efforts at deploying this are succeeding. I have seen people on the net saying, wait a minute, you know, we already have it. Why aren't we hearing more about it? So, of course, with this podcast, we're beginning to help make that happen. But the next version of the HTTP protocol, remember that we started off with slash 1.0, then we went to HTTP slash 1.1. Well, 2.0 is in the works, and it is probably going to incorporate Speedy as part of the protocol. So that moves us into mainstream standardization, which is is great. I just don't see a downside to it at all. That's great. So That's um, great. I wanted to catch everybody up on, on that. There's the latest on Speedy. You know, we now, probably should mention, before we go any farther. Oh, yes, I meant to. Yes, yes, yes. yes. It, for the last yeah, 36 hours, should be gone by now. If you went to uh, any site that had twit.tv in the domain name, you'd get this warning. Not This is the Chrome warning, uh, but there's also similar warnings from Firefox, Safari. Uh, if you had anti-malware software, you might have gotten a similar warning from Nod32 and, and so forth. Warning. Well, and even a, a, a Google search turned up a warning link yeah. in the um, in, in in your result in your results. Google uses a, a service. Uh, a, a, there are actually a number of services that track websites. I think Google does it their own thing, but there are uh, there are other bad software uh, malware um, databases. The warning for those of you listening says something's not right here. Twit.tv contains malware. Your computer might catch a virus. If you visit this site, Google has found malicious software may be installed on your computer if you proceed. You can proceed, um, or you can go back. 
Um, they say we've already notified twit.tv we found malware on the site. No. The notification comes from about the 8 millionth person who sees this and says, tweets me and emails me. And, and, and by the way, I'm glad you do. Thank you. And we, we worked on this uh, quite a bit. Uh, this happens about once a month. And at first, I was about to blame uh, code on our site or a problem, you know, something badly done on our site or our site wasn't fully secured. And then I had a little, and I want to run this by you, I had a little uh, come to Jesus meeting with Bear, Mike Taylor, who's one of the best sysadmins in the world, a part-timer for us, although his part-time job is often full-time as it was yesterday. Um, Bear uh, immediately, and Chris Dieterle, uh, who works with him as well, immediately went in, they, they rooted out the malware they modified the code that was uh, the the exploit. You know, often what happens is you have to figure out well where did the exploit happen and, and get an how updated get module. In. Yeah, how'd they get right. in? So there's two things you you need to find out: how they get in and what did they leave, and um, what did it do? Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, in this case, we were able to get rid of the malware very quickly. It takes a little longer for Google to clear this. They only update this warning every 24 hours. But there is a window of opportunity if you if you fix it fast enough, you don't get in this. We get but because what happens? We found it, we fixed it, and then inadvertently we re-enabled it, the uh, malware. And uh, we thought we'd fixed it, and there was a miscommunication, and somebody on my staff turned it back on. And so it ran uh, all yesterday, Monday, uh, what is it? Uh, this is Wednesday, so it would have run and then, and then all got Monday night. And then Google put up a more serious warning that is harder to clear. It takes 24 hours to unclear. Um, so... That's why the warning persisted for so long. It is gone now, but the, the malware was removed very quickly. And the exploit, I believe, has been patched. So I asked Bear, I said, well, Bear, this is not acceptable. Why? Who, who do I fire? <laughs> you know, who do I blame for this? And he said, Leo, this happens all the time. He said, you, you and every other site is, is hacked constantly. What usually happens is the minute we get word, usually from uh, somebody saying, hey, there's a malware alert on your site, We'll go in, we'll fix it, problem solved, move on. What Because of the failure here, it lasted longer than it normally does, so you become aware of it. He said, but this we're doing this at least monthly, and it's not just your site. Bear works on a lot of very well-known sites, has friends that work on other very well-known sites. He said, the bigger your site, the more often this happens. And any time a site is updated in any way it's likely that you're going to get another exploit. It's so these, he, I said, well, what's the problem? He said, PHP is the problem. Um, the nature of PHP, you remember in the good old days of CGI scripts, you had a special, special directory that was specially permissioned that code could run out of and nowhere else could it run. It can only run from the web server. PHP is designed to run and be executed from any directory, anytime. So if somebody can modify your file system, they could put a PHP script in an arbitrary folder and then point their browser to it and execute it. That script can then install malware. So that's very commonly how it gets exploited. And it's in the nature of PHP. Um, and he said there's no one to fire here. You could say you can blame us for, for all for not getting this cleared sooner. But we do this all the time. <laughs> I said, what? He said, every site is being hacked all the time. And uh, there's not much you can do about it except be very proactive about scanning it on a regular basis. He said most big sites have at least one, if not more, full-time employees whose only job is to look for file system modifications, be checking the log, you know, constantly vigilant against this. It's the only way to prevent it. 
Now, you are in a special case, Steve, because you've written all the uh, code on your site. I bet you it's CGI scripts. It's all, no, actually, it's all assembly language, and it's, uh, it's pre- and post-server uh, filters and backends. So even it, it's actually a single monolithic DLL so that I don't have the overhead of loading and unloading right. and run, stopping and starting CGI. So, so yeah, it's, it's I mean, even more secure uh, for somebody to be able to uh, access your file system on your server. They'd have to find a hole in IIS, I would guess. Um, and there have been some, but I have something, I have my own web filter, which is upstream of IIS, and I, I scrutinize everything coming in through that also. So Right. Yeah. You're much more uh, safe because you're not using off-the-shelf software that people know you wrote your I was going to say, and I have a much less exciting site than you do. <laughs> well, and that's Part what Bear is- said. Bear said the reason this is happening more is because you're more yep. popular. He said, uh, I, I, I want to name names. Well, I'll give you an example. A friend of his, I don't know if I should say this. Anyway, a very, 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 very well-known site it run, does this for them. And he said they're hacked daily. And there's not, and even though that this site has ample resources, let's put it this way, the resources of the entire federal government, uh, they still get hacked all the time. It's, there's, they're, it's a kind of the nature of the beast. I was ready. I, was, I said, but no, wait a minute. You can secure a site, can't you? He said, no. All you can do is constantly monitor it. So, it, and it, people are saying, well, is it because you taunted anonymous? No, it has nothing to do with it. It's not, was not probably targeted at our site. It was some, some scanner that's running all the time, right? And uh, there's many of them. I'm sure there's thousands of scanners running on the internet constantly that are looking for these kinds of exploits. So the minute a modification is made to your site that opens a hole, you're going to get exploited, period. So in any, in any event, uh, it's probably not something that was targeted at us. It, uh, uh, it's just, you know, this is part of doing business on the Internet. A public server is always going to be attacked all the time. Our code is modified quite a, quite a bit, but it is, in fact, most of it uh, commonly well-known code in PHP. Uh, and so it's a full-time job just to uh, secure it. And, in fact, this happens all the time. Now, the good news is, uh, well, first of all, these, I think it's great that these browser alerts are happening. Because it prevents people from going into sites that have been compromised. And yes. all the browsers do that now. You should, if you see it, as much as you might want to watch Twit, you should absolutely back out. Oh, I'll bet you that not a single one of our Security Now listeners is going to say, oh, yeah, I don't care that there's an infection there. I'm just going to go through anyway. Well, a number, yeah, a number of our, uh, I have heard from a number of people who did. Um, the good news is the exploit was a very old Java exploit, and I'm sure that everybody who listens to any of our shows knows enough to keep their system up to date. Right. So it's highly unlikely that anybody had any uh, any malware executed on their system. Uh, however, you should, as always, you should be proactive, scan it. And really, seriously, I understand if you see this on any site, but I understand if you see it on our site, it's fine to email me, tweet me, let me know, and not go in. Please, back out. Uh it will be cleared as soon as we've cleared the malware. It does take, unfortunately, if you don't do it right away, it takes longer to get that cleared, 24 hours to get that cleared. But it is cleared now. If you're still getting it, just restart your browser. You shouldn't see it anymore. Um, and I apologize, uh, but apparently there's no one to blame. It's just the way of the web. Does that sound right to you, Steve? Do you believe it's possible to fully secure a site? Yes, I do. So it, You know, it's, it's just math. Um, that's what I thought. 
Yeah, it is possible. Um, it's probably not convenient. You know, if you if you if you restricted the execution rights of the directories for scripting, then you wouldn't be able to load things in default directories. You, I mean, you wouldn't be able to be nearly as casual as it's convenient to be. But you know, I mean, well, you secure your site, so it is. We know it's possible. Yeah, um, and and I would argue some of your is, security, I would say, is through obscurity because you're not using commonly well-known code. Well, that's not obscure. It's just smart. Um, <laughs> well, um, but if your code but, but, were published but, on the net, people, it'd be more likely to be a, the problem. But the way you structured it, of course, makes it much less likely. Well, and but I mean, in 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 defense of your approach, I mean, you. It, you you would never have the site you have if it were up to me. So, I mean, oh, you would never be hacked, but you wouldn't have all the features you right, have. Right. And 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 it would take about three lifetimes for me to implement everything you have <laughs> in, in a way that well, would make me happy. We'd have to custom you know, program everything, of course. You know, so, for example, yeah. you know, you're pulling you're pulling libraries, third party libraries right. from their servers on the fly into the pages of the of the visitors you're of, of the people who are visiting you you know not you alone i mean that's common practice now I, I i see this and i when i see it i just cringe because you know i see some site that is loading javascript on my pages from a url of some other domain and i and i think well okay yeah it's convenient for them the theory is that when that when that library is being updated, they're automatically updated. The problem, of course, is when that library is compromised, everybody using that is compromised. So, I mean, the what's happened is we've gone for convenience over security. We and you know this show is all about how those two right. are. There's a constant tension between convenience and security, and the fact is to do it right would end up meaning that it was never done at all. And that wouldn't work for you either. So, so so one of the questions I had is, well, why is it that we get this malware warning and nobody else does? And he says, well, there's a number of reasons. First of all, if you have a full-time person doing this, you can clear this before the malware alerts pop up. Second of all, some big, most big sites have an inside line to Google and an inside line to the uh, ma uh. malware sites, the stop badware site, and can... See, Google does not, despite what it says there, notify us. The way we get notified is by the malware alert popping up, and then we act upon it. Most other sites will get a in, an internal, apparent, this is what I'm told, an internal notification. Hey, you got a problem. They'll fix it. And that's why you don't see these. The truth is, and th we knew this about banking. Banks are hacked all the time. It's bad business to talk about it. Right. Sites are hacked at all the time. It's bad business to talk about it. In fact, it's probably a mistake for me to talk about it because it just attracts attention and more hacks. The best thing to do, if you can, is act as if you're never hacked, you're 100% secure, and just, and, and just don't tell anybody. But that's not, as you know, how I, how I uh, operate. Well, and it doesn't work in our model where we have such vigilant listeners and viewers and and they're you know tweeting hey what what's happened here right so uh what we are one of the things that we are going to do and i think we should have done this uh but we couldn't afford to is we are actually hiring 
I'm hoping it's going to be Bear. We're going to extend him an offer, but we're hiring a full-time uh, sysadmin to monitor this at all times. Um, it's a fairly high cost. People like Bear are not cheap because they're really good. But uh, I, you know, it costs us money. We, you know, we lost considerable uh, audience yesterday. People didn't watch live, and uh, we lost considerable ad revenue as a result. So we can't we can't afford to have these. Not to mention, it's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the story. I, uh, you know, I, I, I do feel like it bears in the chat room if people have questions for him uh, or, or want to get more clarification on this. But I do feel like this is something that's a little bit the dirty, uh, dirty little secret of the Internet. And I was uh, when Bear told me this yesterday, I was I was flabbergasted. I thought that we were doing something wrong, that this was something we could fix. And uh, he said, well, it's just the cost of doing business on the net. Unless you're Steve Gibson. Yeah, well, again, or unless you you expend a phenomenal amount of resources in order to keep it from happening. And and unfortunately, our, you know, for example, PHP, it's very nice and very convenient and horribly insecure when when it's not very carefully deployed and managed. So it's a powerful tool, but with that power comes responsibility. And I mean, the whole, the whole model, I mean, we've talked about this, the idea, for example, that someone can, can send, can send through a forum, a, an SQL backend database command, which you're, which will be executed by the server when it delivers that page. I mean, that's insane. It's insane that it was ever allowed to be done that way. Why was it? Because it was convenient for the people who were implementing it. So, so there, are, there are major decisions which have been made which were absolutely wrong by policy, not by mistake. Like, and this was, this was for the longest time, this was my argument with Microsoft, was they had insecure policies that were causing their problems. You know, like having services that were enabled and running that no one needed. You know, that was dumb. And a consequence, we had all these worms for some period of time. Finally, they turned, they put a firewall in the windows and turned it on by default. And all of that problem just went away. Bang. Oh, it's a miracle. No, they finally fixed their policy. So, so the, the, the problem is we were still in a position where convenience is trumping security. And, you know, the idea that, that your, your own database would execute commands that your website visitors gave it, that's just nuts. But the architecture enforces, I mean, it, it encourages that almost. And similarly, the idea that somebody could put a PHP script on your server, which your server would then execute, that's nuts. I mean, that's just crazy. To, to accept executable command from, from a passerby. But the fundamental architecture says, oh, look, here's PHP. I'm supposed to run that because I recognize the extension on that file. Just lunacy. But that's the way these sites are built now. Yeah. And, you know, they're just, they're not secure by design. They're secure by constant vigilance, which is exactly what Bear is, is, is talking about. And, it's too bad that that's the state of the art, but that's where we are today. <sighs> and people want to so, blame uh, Drupal or our web designers or blame, there's lots, and blame PHP. And uh, certainly there's, there, you know, <laughs> you, you already expressed the case, but it is just the way it is. I mean, it's not. 
Yeah, it's, it's not Drupal's it, it, fault. It's not PHP's fault particularly. I, I agree, it was kind of a crazy way to do it. I, I long for the days of lockdown CGI script folders, but uh, <laughs> oh well. And yeah. uh, and and we are making somewhat of a mistake by talking about it because uh, it does attract attention, and uh, that br- you know brings more attempts to hack you. And uh, well, it's funny. It, Bear, Bear, it also. To, to the degree that we have other webmasters listening who are thinking, right. hmm, right. you know, maybe I need to give some better thought to, you know, the, the, the security side of this. My point the, the, exactly. Problem, yeah. yeah, the problem is the people who are building these libraries, the, you know, they're, they're, they're doing what they need to. They, the problem is the systems are just not secure by default. Right. Uh, and uh, Bear tells me that every time we do this, we talk about these kinds of things, that the the, uh, the server logs show a real spike in attacks. Uh, so there are absolutely people listening who see this as a challenge. And uh, and Bear's, Bear just uh, ch- said in the chat room, uh, he says, I, I cringe every time you do this, but he understands that that's what we do and that's what we need to do. And that's, I think, one of the reasons Bear likes uh, working for us. So we, we will, I'm sure, have a full-time uh, security uh, <laughs> czar. Uh, on the site uh, as soon as we can do that. Moving on. So, so last week we moved the podcast from Wednesday to Tuesday to make room for Wednesday. And I just wanted to touch briefly on the fact that my two first third generation iPads are sitting in Ontario, California at the FedEx Depot patiently waiting for Friday morning when Me they'll too. be loaded on... Me too. They'll be loaded on uh, on a FedEx van. Mine's and, right next and... to yours in Ontario. <laughs> oh, no kidding! Is that where it is? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, I've heard from people who have them in Nashville, but that's uh, the FedEx hub. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ontario is is it's almost like the town was. You and I know because we went there for Podcast Expo a few years ago. Yes. It's the town that was built to be a hub. It's nothing yes. but big truck depots. Well, yeah, and, and 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 it's the Ontario uh, airport surrounded by huge warehousing that that from which everything spreads. And Ontario airport is a perfect place for you know freight planes to be coming and going because pretty much nobody else is coming right, and going right, there. Right, it's great. I love yeah. it. So we'll get it on Friday. You know, and someone said, someone tweeted, Steve, I didn't think you were a sheep, or something to that effect. And, you know, as if I'd, you know, bought into this. And I, I'm, I've been very clear from the beginning. First of all, I love the iPad. I think it's, it's my platform. It's my portable platform of choice. I've got a Fire. Um, I've, I've played with it. It just doesn't have nearly the fit and finish. But, of course, it's one-third the price. For me, it's the screen. At that, that retina screen is all I want. 2048 by 1536, and I'm done. I, am, I will be absolutely happy. To, to have that. So I'm, you know, it's just, it, it's going to be my little portable pad with, with that screen. I'm, you know, one will live in the car and one will live in the house. And uh, I'm just going to be a happy camper. Do you know, Leo, by the way, I'm still grandfathered into the original unlimited AT&T data plan. But I wondered as they moved to 4G and LTE. Yeah, they'll find a way to get you off of that plan. I am too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what they've said, which is interesting, is that they are not throttling the iPad. Because, uh, you know, the way they're handling the unlimited, quote, unlimited data on the iPhone is if you go over one and a half or two gigabytes, forget it. <laughs> you go yeah. down to edge right. speed. Um, right. But apparently they're not doing that on the iPad. There is a reason to go with Verizon, though. Verizon has more LTE. Uh, I don't know about where you live, um, 
But well, I'm definitely. I mean, I'm I'm a Verizon customer. It was only the fact that the that the pad right. was only available on AT and T at the beginning. I'm sure why AT and T keeps this uh, unlimited yes. thing grandfathered in. They're hoping not to lose you because Verizon oh, yeah. has a more compelling offer, and um, they're they're going to allow hot spotting. Now, I don't. For a lot of people, mm-hmm. having a hot spot on your iPad may not be an important selling point, but the fact is, AT and T is not going to allow it. So, right. Yeah, as far so, as I know, they're anyway. continuing to do it, but uh, I can only imagine there's a there's a there's a strategic strike force in the executive <laughs> offices at AT and T trying to figure out how can we get people off this unlimited plan. Now you don't know when yours is arriving, so we don't know if you're there's going to be a Twit unboxing. There will live be video. So here's the deal: as yours, mine says as yours does before three p.m. Okay, and I hope they're not lying because I know that that sometimes does not happen. We have scheduled, we moved iPad today from Thursday to Friday at 4 p.m. So with any luck, <laughs> it's going to be very embarrassing if we're sitting there at iPad today and no iPads have arrived. But we have a total, I think, of four or six ordered. I'm hoping at least one of them will arrive by 4 p.m. Friday so we can have an, an unboxing on iPad today. And we have heard that the screen is unbelievable, haven't we? Yeah. Every, you know, Ryan Block at Ungadget uh, was at the uh, event, showed us uh, the screen, and even on Skype, you could tell the difference. When he zoomed in, you could tell the crispness. There have been videos. There's an, a, a video from Vietnam that is uh, almost certainly legitimate of an unboxing. And, but again, I think I don't... It's pure speculation, because I haven't seen it, but it's my sense that when you see this... You'll say, "Boy, that if, I feels like you're looking at a real, real yes. objects." You know, not not pixels. Not pixels. I, yes, yeah. So, but yes. we'll see. We'll find out. Estimated okay. delivery March. Ooh, look at this one. That must be an error. That that has to be a mistake. Estimated delivery March fifteenth. <laughs> what they do this? They do this every time. Okay, I just got to tell you, they do this every time. Where um, then. So it says March 15th. That's tomorrow by 3 p.m. Then they, they will have a little thing that says held at request of shipper. <laughs> but they haven't said that yet on this one. It is, at, it is Ontario next to yours. Got there this morning. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> oh. Anyway, we'll anyway. have it. And I, I'm done then. I am I'm a happy camper. I don't need anything else ever again. Oh, yeah. Until uh, the next time. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have I have a feeling I, this is good. Would you use this in, in lieu of a Kindle? That will be the big question because I'm reading with my DX, my big Kindle, right. um, twice a day when I leave the house to grab a bite of, of, of food. I mean, I love the big form factor. I gave my I found a, a white one, which they no longer make on eBay that had barely been used. I gave it to mom this last Christmas. The prior Christmas, I gave her the previous small one. And so she called that her little friend, and this is now her big friend. And <laughs> say hello to my little it. friend. <laughs> I, I really like it. And so, is mom a fan of Scarface? <laughs> <laughs> uh, mom's been around. So, um, <laughs> anyway, so I'll want to see whether the crispness of the text on the on this so-called Retina display moves me from the convenience of the reflective Kindle display. Right. I That's one of the things I want to see. Is this what I switch to for all of my book reading? So, don't know. Is the DX screen, um, 
How how big is that's eight inches, right? Eight and a half inches, something like that. No, it's actually it's a little more. It's a it's longer than the pad is tall, and a little narrower. Okay, so it's a little more. It's a little more non-square aspect ratio. Right, uh, but you know, I I just it's very nice having a big page of text and. And I, uh, one of the restaurants I ha- I eat at sometimes turns the lights down too low, which is annoying because of course I need light for the for the Kindle. So I used the pad the other day, and it was fine. But it's just the Kindle is lighter and sort of just easier to. I I, I prefer it for reading books. I, but the pad is for everything else. We'll see if we'll see if that changes after I have this good can't amazing wait. amazing screen. Yeah, so. Yeah. We're just past the second Tuesday of the month, and we had a very noisy Microsoft update cycle because Microsoft is running around flapping their arms, warning everyone about the problem that we've already talked about a couple of weeks ago that I kind of yawned about. Um, you know, quoting from Microsoft's own blog post, they said, Hello, today we're releasing six security bulletins, one critical class, four important and one moderate, addressing seven issues in Microsoft Windows Visual Studio and Expression Design. We recommend that customers focus on MS-12-020, our sole critical class bulletin, as the March deployment priority. Here's a little more about MS-12-020. This bulletin addresses one critical class issue and one moderate class issue in remote desktop protocol, RDP. Both issues were cooperatively disclosed to Microsoft, and we know of no active exploitation in the wild. The critical class issue applies to a fairly specific subset of systems, those running RDP, the remote desktop, and is less problematic for those systems with network-level authentication, NLA, enabled. That said, we strongly recommend that customers examine and prepare to apply this bulletin as soon as possible. The critical class issue could allow a would-be attacker to achieve remote code execution on a machine running RDP, which they mention is a non-default configuration. If the machine does not have NLA enabled, the attacker would not require authentication to access. And then finally, um, elsewhere, Microsoft was quoted saying, or I'm quoting them saying, this issue is potentially reachable over the network by an attacker before authentication is required. RDP is commonly allowed through firewalls due to its utility. The service runs in kernel mode as system by default on nearly all platforms. During our investigation, we determined that this vulnerability is directly exploitable for code execution. Developing a working exploit will not be trivial. We would be surprised to see one developed in the next few days. However, we expect, and this is why everyone's running around with their hair on fire, Microsoft said, we expect to see working exploit code developed within the next 30 days. Okay, so first of all, the reason I had already discounted this when we discussed this, we, this has been a known vulnerability for a while. I said, okay, first of all, it's 
remote desktop is not enabled by default. Remote assistance is enabled, but that's not the same thing. So this is not a problem with the re- with the remote assistance. This is with remote desktop, which you which is not on by default. Even if you turn it on, you're still well. Let's see. Probably it punches a hole through your Windows firewall because it knows that it needs to be able to receive in connect, incoming connections on port three three eight nine. So that's the default port for for uh, remote desktop is three three eight nine. But I can't imagine anybody doesn't have now a Soho router, a small office home office router, and that's definitely going to protect you from any unsolicited incoming probes to port three three eight nine. That is to say, even if you've got all your machines at home with remote desktop enabled, unless it's only if the, if an outbound connection is initiated on that port that incoming traffic would be allowed to come back through, which would not be the case because outbound connections actually would be initiated to that port on someone else's machine, not from your 3389 port. So, so, so there just isn't a vulnerability unless you explicitly have your, your world set up because you roam around out in the world and you want to be able to access your, comp- your computer's remote desktop remotely. That's the danger. But this network-level awareness is an additional protocol which has been implemented since Vista. It's not available in XP. Uh, I think it can be turned on in Service Pack 3. So in XP Service Pack 3, they added it, but it's not on. There is a Microsoft site, a quick fix button, that allows you to turn that on for XP. It's in the UI of Vista and Windows 7 and Windows 8. Um, so turning that on enforces a level of authentication prior to the exploit being able to function. The problem what we have now is that it's possible to exploit the vulnerability prior to authenticating with remote desktop, which is really bad. So I don't, you know, I'm glad Microsoft has fixed this now. I don't expect it to be a huge problem. But for any people who know that they deliberately mapped port 3389 through their through their NAT router in order to get to their desktop when they're out roaming around, that's the those are the people if they don't have this NLA enabled, they're at at risk. But all you have to do is apply today's patches, you know, bring your system up to to current and you're fine too. For corporate installations that cannot, for whatever reason, deploy a patch instantly, Microsoft does have a fix-it button, which allows you to turn on NLA to temporarily bring up a barrier. If you still need, if you desperately need to have access to remote desktop in the meantime and are unable to apply the patch, turning on this network-level authentication, that solves the problem too. So, as always, install your Windows patches promptly and you'll be okay. And no doubt in the next few weeks, we'll have some, you know, someone's going to try to do 
a worm or a, a, an attack or something. A worm is is potentially a concern because we we know that the default port is 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 three three eight nine. So you just scan the internet for anything that accepts a connection on three three eight nine. That's more than likely going to be Windows Remote Desktop. And once you figure out what Microsoft did and changed, you'll be able to figure out the exploit, which is no doubt what some hackers are working on right now to find people who don't install patches, who aren't listening to this podcast, who for some reason do have remote desktop enabled, and they'd like to crawl into their computers. Unfortunately, this gives them a way to do that. Um, we recently had the sixth annual CanSec West's Pwn to Own contest. We've had fun talking about this in years past. And what was embarrassing was that Chrome was immediately brought to its knees. Um, it took minutes and an exploit was developed that escaped the, the much vaunted sandbox of Chrome. So the fact that Chrome is sandboxed, we've said, you know, that's good. It makes things much more difficult to exploit, but we can't count on it perfectly. And this was an example. There was an exploit that was developed. However, it's worth mentioning that it apparently used a vulnerability in Chrome's version of Flash. So once again, Flash and the complexity of Flash was the underlying problem, but uh, the good news is, to and I salute uh, Google for this, they had it fixed within 24 hours. The moment that they understood what the problem was, they were able to push out a, a, a patch and fix Chrome quickly. So, you know, this is a little bit like the model we were just talking about with your website, Leo, and websites in general that are so complex that they're just, there is going to be ways to get in. What If that's the case, the best thing you can do is is watch them carefully and fix them quickly. And, you know, that's that's really the the the, the on-the-fly patching model that Chrome from the beginning has adopted. And, of course, you know, we're seeing other people, you know, uh, we're, we're, you know, Mozilla's talking about being much better about that as well. Speaking of which, there was a pwn-to-own vulnerability found in Firefox 11 just before its deployment, which has just happened, it turns out once they saw what it was, they already knew about it. They were in the process of fixing it. So it's fixed. So um, it's there. Oh, and, and I also had a note that both re relative back to Speedy again, I think I, I touched on it, but there is something called Speedy Indicator available both for Chrome and for Firefox that is Firefox 11 and on, which supports Speedy, and it uh, puts a little green bolt of lightning in your address bar just to indicate as, as pure information when you're visiting a site that is supporting the Speedy protocol. So for people who want to play with Speedy, you need to enable it. As I said, in Firefox 11, it'll be on by default. The plan is in 13. But it is a, it's a Firefox add-on, so go search for Speedy SPDY Indicator. You can find an add-on for Firefox, and there exists also one for Chrome. And following up on, uh, on uh, the disgrace of GoDaddy, I just this sort of came across my radar, and I thought it was interesting. Michelle Paulson, whose legal counsel uh, blogged on March 9th, so just a few days ago, 
She said, after months of deliberation and a complicated transfer, the Wikimedia Foundation, uh, as in Wikipedia, the Wikimedia Foundation domain portfolio has been successfully transferred away from GoDaddy. The portfolio transfer was formally completed on Friday, March 9th, 2012. The transfers were done seamlessly and our sites did not experience any interruption of service or other issues during the procedure. As the provider of the fifth most visited web properties in the world, the foundation, that is the Wikimedia Foundation, cares deeply about who handles our domain names. We have been deliberating a move away from GoDaddy for some time. Our legal department felt the company was not the best fit for our domain needs, and we began actively seeking other domain management providers in, de in December of 2011. GoDaddy's initial support for the Stop Online Piracy Act, SOPA, the controversial anti-piracy legislation in the U.S. House of Representatives, reaffirmed our decision to end the relationship. Yay. So, yay again. Yes. That was just Wiki inappropriate. Wikipedia. And I think, you know, it's good that they saw that and good that everybody else saw that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like, you know, learn from that. So little quickies from the Twitterverse. Um, Clifford Williams tweeted uh, as the G dot. Uh, don't know what that is, but uh, he said that he said at SGGRC, the Cherokee web server already has support for Speedy. I meant to check out what the Cherokee web server was, what platforms it runs on and so forth, but didn't get around to it. But if anyone knows what that is, uh, there's news there. Um, and that was before I learned that not even not not only that, but Apache has support of some kind. And of course, Google has it widely de deployed across their site. Um and, oh, and Guy Smiley 777 he tweeted, love my AeroPress, <laughs> and you're right. A consistent burr grinder makes a huge difference. He says, I was shocked at the difference. And so I did want to let people know I created a shortcut for anyone who's curious. Um, I think we've noted before that our coffee discussion, which was huge, huge pre-podcast uh, recording a few weeks ago uh, has made it to YouTube. You can just put in, I think, Steve Gibson Coffee, and you can find it. <laughs> but, um, but I put in also, I made a bit.ly shortcut that was explicit. So it's bit.ly slash capital S, capital G, all lowercase coffee. So SG Coffee, uh, a bit.ly shortcut, will take you directly to it. Uh, and it's just a nice little, I think it's 18 minutes of you and me, Leo, talking about our passion for, for all things caffeine. And I blame you because I just bought the most ridiculous burr grinder in the history of mankind. Yay! <laughs> well, I had one before I had a Krups. And they're okay. like 20 bucks at, uh, at Wait, Costco. Wait, burr grinder for 20 bucks? I'm surprised. Well, I know. So I went online and I ordered the KitchenAid ProLine Series Burr Coffee Mill. This thing is... It's like a Briggs and Stratton engine attached to a burr grinder. <laughs> Wait, and that's not the one I got because I did get a KitchenAid. Well, maybe it is the one you got. Pro line. Yeah, well, Does this it have is like it. A big, big black knob in the front. Yeah, it looks like a and, sausage and, grinder. It's the same one you yes. got, and it's your yes, fault. And, and <laughs> at one hundred fifty-eight bucks, <laughs> that's the one. Yep, I blame you, Steve. But it's good coffee. I had to have some this morning. Oh. 
and it's amazing. And then the other thing I got, and I don't, is a coffee vault because you know you buy a pound of beans, but you don't grind them. And uh, so, uh, as long as we're talking coffee, I bought this thing. It's we're, called we're, a, we're doing it again, a aren't we? Freeze coffee vault, and it, it's it's sealed, but it has something interesting. It has a CO two exchanger in the lid that you change every month. They say in the materials that yes, you want to keep it in a cool, dry place. You you want to limit exposure to air, but you also want to vent CO two that's coming off the coffee. Oh. So this thing has a CO two vent. It is true that Starbucks Starbucks bean bags when you buy they pounds, have a little vent. There's there's a belly button yeah. on the bag. Yeah, and that's what it's for. It's to vent the CO two. Yeah. So this is a little canister that I can buy a pound at a time and seal it. And then <laughs> it's your fault. I blame you. I'm happy to take responsibility for it's you pretty, having a pretty bird damn, grinder, Leo. Pretty damn good I'm, coffee. I'm not feeling sorry for you. Sorry about that. Pretty darn good. I'll tell you. How that many thing, iPad 3s did you buy? Yeah, you're right. 168 yeah. bucks for a bird grinder. Big deal. I mean, the funny thing is the plunger is like 20 bucks. the AeroPress. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and you're right. That nothing slows that that grinder down. Boy, you turn it on. <laughs> okay. Now, when uh, when the announcement happened on Wednesday, Apple's site came up and their store was down. And I knew that I wanted to get in instantly. They they put up that 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 placeholding page that said the Apple Store is offline. We're making updates. Well, everyone in the universe knew what they were doing. They were getting ready to put the iPad, the third generation iPad, on sale. So I was clicking refresh for a while, but I'm thinking, oh, how, how long am I going to be clicking refresh? So I thought there's got to be a web page change detector. Now, I had one that I'd used for years. There was a little standalone app, uh, uh, Windows app, and I, uh, and I tried to use it, but it wasn't happy with Apple's page. It just, it, it does, whatever the technology was that the page was putting it through confused it, so it didn't work. So I thought, what about an add-on for Firefox, which is still my primary browser? Well, I found something fantastic that I wanted just to share with our users for anything like this in the future because I, I was notified the moment, actually within 30 seconds, of Apple's site switching to the commerce site coming back online. This thing told me, and I was able to get my purchase in before everybody else figured out that Apple's site was back up. It's called Check 4, the numeral 4, Changes, a.k.a. C4C. Check for Changes, or and actually the URL is uh you know addons.mozilla.org slash en hyphen us slash firefox slash add-on slash check for change. So there it's not plural. Maybe it is just check for change. Anyway, so what I like it's very nice. It's a, a lightweight add-on for for Firefox. You mark a some some text on the page that you want it to be looking at, and then you right click on the tab and say, start checking. You're able to choose any of five intervals, and those five are configurable in the options. And, and I had it, I, it was defaulted for 30 seconds, and I thought, well, that's often enough. And then what it does is it changes the little icon on the tab 
to a countdown clock just so you can see, and it goes 29, 28, 27, 26, and when it hits zero, it reloads the page and then checks the marked text to see if it's changed, and then you can have it play some alert sound uh, if it detects a change. So I liked it because it's integrated into the browser. That's kind of where you want that kind of thing to be. It had no trouble with Apple's page because, of course, it is a browser and it knows how to read pages, whereas this much more simple-minded you know, simple HTTP query thing that I had before just was lost in oblivion. It was probably getting 19 levels of indirection or something before it finally got to the, who knows, cookie exchanges and things before it was able to get there. So this worked really nice, and I wanted to let people know. Um, I have a request from Consumer Reports. I did an interview with them last week talking about Facebook privacy stuff, and they had a couple questions that could only be answered really by a Facebook developer which I am not. So if we have in our audience anyone who knows how to develop for Facebook, who knows the ins and outs of the Facebook API for doing Facebook apps, um, I'm sure any such person would also be on Twitter. So please drop me a tweet at SGGRC um, because I'd like to put you in touch with a producer at Consumer Reports who... Uh, would like to put your name in lights and interview you. Cool. Um, and I wanted to mention that Elaine, it turns out, our illustrious transcriber, also proofreads mm. and at a very reasonable price. Jenny, whom you've met, Leo, is a prolific writer and she just finished a screenplay and this is the second thing she's had Elaine proofread and I can't quote the price. I don't know what it is, but... I, we didn't even identify Jenny as Jenny to Elaine when she quoted because I didn't want to take advantage of Elaine in any way. And Jenny could not be happier with the results that she's had. So I wanted just to let our listeners know that if they need something professionally proofread, um, there's someone who can do it. And that's Elaine. It's on-sitemedia.com, on-sitemedia.com. I think that's what it is, <laughs> dot com. Um, okay. And lastly, uh, I want, well, not lastly, I'm still going. Um, we're going to run out of time before we even get to the questions. <laughs> um, uh, I am more than halfway through book 13 of the honor of the unending, never ending honor Harrington series. And I take back any frustration I ever had with it. Oh my goodness. 12 began to accelerate and even though there was a sort of a quiet period maybe through like book six through nine or ten I, I oh my goodness David Weber the good news is he's written nothing since except there are ancillary books but I'm not going to go into those because I have this other stuff I have to get to <laughs> there are <laughs> limits man <laughs> yeah but oh my goodness it has been worth everything we we have this incredibly well-defined, huge, mature, interesting galaxy steeped in politics. And I happen to like politics. I like, I mean, and, and the, these are, the, the, the people do realistic things. And I, I'm just, I couldn't be more pleased with this investment that I've made. So I did want to say that, boy, it's, it's been worth the journey. I am loving where this has been going. And now that I'm all caught up, because he's been writing these things since 1984 or something. I mean, like forever. Um, they go way back. It's been fun to see the terminology catch up with present time, too, because he's 
I caught him using some terms that weren't in common use when the series began. So, of course, he, he couldn't use them back then. Like cell phone, um, fax yeah, machine, <laughs> automobile. Um, yeah, it's, it's been interesting. But um, anyway, oh, wow. Um, and I, I for a while I was annoyed that we, heard, we weren't seeing more of Honor Harrington because I fell in love with her in the beginning. Now, I mean, and she stayed around and other things have come in. Uh, oh, my goodness. It's just fantastic and the the one the one thing else no i, I can't say anything more because i'm i can't no do spoilers, spoilers but, no spoilers no, no I, but oh it's just there's mm. it's just you know i'm 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 clapping that's me yay, clapping it's yay. yay it's really good it's not much of a spoiler if you have to read 13 novels to get to it but i think uh, we should still yeah any, i'll know. wait a year I'll, a year from now i'll let people know what it was because <laughs> uh, i'll figure even by then you've either read them or you've or you given up gonna, or yeah, you know yeah. you, you got burned out okay so, Leo, I've mentioned to you a few times that I have been reading about carbohydrates. Mm. And I warned you about that pie that uh, on, on, on pie day. Wait, I wait a minute. Just... You're not going to say anything that makes it undesirable to eat this fine pecan pie, are you? Well, well we all know that I do experiments yeah. on myself. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, I played with vitamin D. You actually, there's a lot you haven't heard about that I've done that someday we'll get around to doing our a series of health podcasts. But I needed to share something with you. The, the reason I'm excited about getting through with this Honor Harrington series is that I've got four books stacked up on the science of carbohydrate metabolism that I really want to get to. But I read enough of them to, con- to, to it, you know, you just can tell when something makes sense. And they, they made sense. So five weeks ago, I made a dramatic, deliberate change in my diet. I ate, I have eaten since then absolutely no man-made, simple carbohydrates or starches. That is, no potatoes. And I felt self-conscious. For example, there's a, there, there's a, there, there's a vegetable soup that I like at this place that's got some potatoes in it. Well, I've and I've never done this in my life, but I've sort of you know when I encounter one on my spoon, I'll push it off this out of the bowl onto the plate that is next to it, and I you know I feel like I'm being a picky eater, but I mean I've I've decided if I was doing an experiment, I would be rigid about it. So so what is what, what does this mean? Well, this means you know beef. Chicken, fish, shellfish, and salad vegetables, essentially. It's all I've eaten. No bread, no grain, rice, no oat bran, no whole wheat, none, none of that. Friday of last week, I did a, another round of blood tests. And I've done, I mean, they know me. They, they, they're used to, <laughs> they're the used to you. Oh, what is that, that, what is it now, Steve? It's very funny because I show up early so that I'm the first person there on the earliest day that they open. Right. Because it's going to take doors, a while. <laughs> the doors are normally locked. The nor- doors are normally locked. Anyway, I went up in the elevator with, with, with the phlebotomist yeah. who once he finally turned to me and he said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you <laughs> like getting your blood drawn? <laughs> you know, anyway, so Friday was testing day after five weeks avoiding carbs. Yeah. I mean, not avoiding. I mean, absolutely z- no exception, zero carbs. My bad cholesterol, my LDL, dropped nearly in half. Wow. It is, it is at 54.5% of what it last was. 
And I know why. I mean, I and I would go into the science, but this is not the podcast for that. But for what it's worth, I just I wanted to share with our listeners. There are people out here, I would imagine, in our community of listeners who, you know, who feel that their cholesterol is too high. Maybe they're on statins to bring it down, which is unfortunate because statins have a lot of negative consequences. But um, I, for, for what it's worth, my own limited individualized personal experiment i have never had my bad cholesterol my ldl this low and it did nothing to lower my hdl the high density lipoprotein good cholesterol it stayed exactly where it was but ldl just it it crashed it it just collapsed so, and, and uh, I just want to give the usual disclaimer: Steve's not a physician; yep. is not making any recommendations. Please don't follow his recommendations. You know, <laughs> but you know, it's funny because this conversation has been going on for over a year. Paul Thorat uh, read the same book that you've read: the Good Calories, Bad Calories book. And um, but I have to say that a study came out. Did you see the Harvard study that came out uh, uh, this week? Um, a, oh, financed by the wheat growers of America. No, no, no. It's a, it was a long-term, longitudinal, 52-year 15-year study with over 100,000 men and women uh, who were free of cardiovascular disease and cancer at baseline. And what it concluded was that there is absolutely no safe amount of red meat, period, <laughs> that basically uh, any red meat you eat increases your risk factors, uh, and I can I can tell you why that study is nonsense. Okay, but I can't tell you now. No, I saw the study. I read the report in extensively, and in fact, the good calories, bad calories uh, science writer Gary Tobbs has a beautiful, clear explanation of the problems with that kind of study. That was a dietary questionnaire study, right. and the, the the problem is they're just they, that those kinds of studies I mean. You just have to take them with a grain of salt. That's what the uh, Meat certainly. Institute said too, by the way. That, <laughs> just in, in case you're curious, the red yeah, there not... is a American Meat Institute, and they said that uh, re- relying on notoriously unreliable self-reporting about what was eaten and obtuse methods to apply statistical de- analysis to the data is classically an error. Yeah, there, there's a guy, a, a a pseudoscientist named Ansel Keys, who is responsible pretty much for this whole belief that uh, saturated fat is bad for us. Now, you could, um, you could, by the way, uh, I presume, do a no-carb diet that didn't have red meat and bacon and salami and hot dogs in it. You could eat other forms of protein. Oh, and, and I'm, not a big, I'm not a big meat eater at all. So I'm, it might I be lo- based I'm, on this. It might be pr- – pr- anyway, we shouldn't get into it, but – I really like fish. And Let's so just put I, out, point out that there are there are dis- disagreements among people who do well, this for a living. Here's here's what I would say, Leo, us. is because the other thing we are is all individual. It is vastly I, one of the things I have learned in the seven years I've been studying nutrition as a background hobby is the incredible variety that exists among people. So there are people who have sensitivities to one thing or the other that right. others don't. Well, that's why a 15-year longitudinal study of 100,000 people is better than... Tells you you nothing about you. That's the key. Right. Nothing about you. So, and and that's my big problem with the fact that doctors diagnose based on these 
right. these huge public studies health, public health, that, yeah. are, that are yeah. not about you. The, the, right. the thing they do ask, which is good, is what's your family history? Because right. now they're beginning to, to zero in on who you are. So the only thing I want to say is what happened to me was that. And it's simple for someone to try. It's just, you know, I mean, I, I understand people have carbohydrate cravings. Well, there's a reason for that, too. But, you know, Gary, Gary Tobbs also points out that cholesterol is not necessarily a, a, a valuable indicator. I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, as but a that's a fact. Now we get in a really long story, so we won't do that. <laughs> but yes, but, but he predicted, he does in that book predict exactly what, well, actually, you got a remarkable result. Uh, but he does predict a, a surprising result, which is a lowering of cholesterol and lipid uh, in blood tests. Well, triglycerides. Triglycerides, because, uh, yeah. Yes, because blood, uh, your liver turns glucose into triglycerides, and that lowers the size of of the uh, lipoproteins and the tiny high de- the, the the tiny VLDL and LDL lipoproteins are much more prone to something called glycation and oxidation, both which are bad things for your arteries. But so we will talk we, more about that some other time. <laughs> because we've okay. got 13 questions in half an oh hour. God, never going to get to that. <laughs> I, I have to briefly say, somebody tweeted me, hey, Steve, I heard you talking about Spinrite 6.1. Should I wait to order Spinrite? And, okay, well, the phrase to the cows come home uh, is, is maybe generic or, or uh, applies here. First of all, all Spinrite 6 owners were, are going to get 6.1 for free Yay. whenever I get around to doing it. There aren't any bugs that I know of in Spinrite. I just want to catch it up with things that have happened since I finished it in 2004. And there's been a lot of changes since then. Much stronger use of SATA over, you know, serial ATA over parallel ATA, much larger drives, uh, Bioses are becoming increasingly buggy, so Spinrite's dependence on the BIOS is something I want to remove. I want to build in Ultra DMA. Um, we got the, the Western Digital uh, hybrid drive that uses some flash and some storage. Spinrite already does the right thing, but it could do a better job with it. We've got the big sector drives, um, or maybe it's, it's the, the WD big sector drives that use 4K sectors. Again, Spinrite works with those, but it'd be, I, I could detect that and do a better job in terms of buffer sizing and, and to, to make it better. So I'm going to update Spinrite, but you know, waiting to purchase it makes no sense because it works fine now. I'm just going to make it work better. And I'm not starting on it now. There's only one of me. And right now, I'm still finishing up this really interesting project on finding the longest uh, repeating strings and files, which is part of the, the, the project of putting Spinrite testimonials on the site, which I want to get done. Then I've got to get finished with the, the, um, the off the grid. I've got to finish that, those pages up. Then I want to finally get the cookie stuff published, and then I'm done. And then I'm going to start on Spinrite. But I move slowly, so... If you think you need Spinrite, uh, you know, uh, believe me, from a preventative maintenance standpoint, get it, and you'll still get 6.1 as soon as it's it's ready. So I just wanted to make sure I didn't confuse people by saying, oh, something fantastic and new is coming along that, you know, I want to wait for. It's like, well, you'll you'll get it anyway, and all it is is just sort of catching up with things that have happened in, in the last <laughs> eight years. We're going to uh, take a break on this pie day and uh, come back with your Q&A. 13 questions, good and true. But before we do that, 
I, I just was watching uh, on uh, YouTube, uh, Ford is celebrating Pi Day with a uh, video on YouTube. Ford, of course, is full of engineers and geeks. And uh, <laughs> they love this kind of stuff. And uh, this is the little video they put up on uh, YouTube to celebrate Pi Day 314 at the Ford Motorcation <laughs> Motor Company. I love it. Ford, of course, uh, for Pi is the circumference of a circle divided by the diameter. So if you want to, you know, this would be a good little video to show uh, your, your friends and family. Number, so it goes on through infinity. <laughs> I love this. Uh, but I do know it's approximately 3.1415. Nine two six five <laughs> eight nine seven. Abby could do more than that. <laughs> so that's a great video talking about the Ford Fusion and how Pi is a part of Ford's engineering. Actually, I want to talk to you a little bit about the curve control in Ford. I found that video. You should follow if you're not if you have not yet liked Ford on um, Facebook. They actually have a great little page on Facebook with a lot of. Uh, a lot of interesting information, including that video on uh, Pi Day. Uh, curve control is one of the... We've been talking about this quite a bit. The idea of an autonomous vehicle. And I ask Alan uh, every time I see him, the CEO of Ford, when are you going to do a car that drives itself? And he says, never, Leo. Never. People love to drive, blah, blah, blah. But really, the truth is, they understand that... And Alan said, you know, in my experience as an aviation engineer, he designed the 777 cockpit for Boeing. He was at Boeing for a long time. You'd never take the pilot out of the equation, but you want to use technology to give them more information to assist them. And that's where uh, the autonomy comes in. Not a car that drives itself, but a car that helps you drive better. And curve control in the new 2013 SH, uh, uh, Ford Taurus uh, is absolutely is absolutely one of these things. Every 100 times every second, the uh, computer in the car calculates the roll rate, the yaw rate, the lateral acceleration, the wheel speed, the steering angle. And what it's looking for, what it's checking out is, are you trying to steer the vehicle, turn the vehicle quicker than the vehicle can turn? And if it senses that you're actually, you know, Going into a curve harder than you can do, it will reduce the engine torque, apply four-wheel braking. It can slow the vehicle up to 10 miles an hour in a second, per second, and it works on wet or drive pavement. It's one of many features in the new Ford Taurus, like active park assist, adaptive cruise control, the nav, the bliss with cross-traffic alert. That just makes it a smart car that's fun to drive. Yeah, you still get to drive it but it's going to help you drive it more safely. And if you've got kids like I do, my son, is Henry's just starting to drive now. he got his permit, and he's I'm taking him. I, it's things like this I really appreciate. You can find out more about Curve Control at the, uh, at the Taurus site. That's Ford.com slash cars slash Taurus. And that 2013 Taurus is at your Ford dealer now. You can test drive it do soon because it's just a neat car. With lots of great features. Ford.com slash cars slash tours. Drive one today. And we thank Ford for their support of security now. Steve, I've got questions. Are you in the mood? Well, I am. I'm a little worried about the time, though. Yeah, we'll, we'll go but, until uh, we run out. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, okay. We've, we've given our listeners quite a podcast so far. <laughs> so far. Not quite the Q&A that we had planned. But, you know, go go until, you know, until you need to until do we your gotta next go. podcast. We got this week in Google at one. We'll get, we got time. Yep. Yeah, okay. Question one. Stephen in North Yorkshire, UK, he wonders if his use of TrueCrypt is 
fully secure. Steve, I have all my banking details for several accounts for myself and my wife in a single TXT file on a TrueCrypt encrypted USB card or chip. Whilst I realize that is safe, as it has a 26-character passphrase employing your suggestions, etc., once I open the text file in Word or any other editor, and am I storing the data unencrypted in various cache files and log files on my PC? If so, is there any way around this? That's a good question. Thanks to both you and Leo and his staff for the hard work you put into producing security now. Stephen in North Yorkshire, UK. It's a great question. Yeah. And I often notice, for example, when I open a Word document, that Word opens up a temp file right. right in that same directory that's got the you know a a some variant of that document in it so so there the document was written to the disk on the fly by the word processor unencrypted so, un, yes exactly unencrypted so so Stephen raises a great point here you've got the the, the file encrypted with truecrypt but the act of viewing the contents is is causing it to be written to your drive now what i would suggest is that there's first of all the problem of course is that we we're not using secure operating systems these were you know these, these started off as a toy os on the desktop and never really lost that flavor so there's nothing secure about the, the the systems we're using we've you know added features here and there trying to increase their security but fundamentally they're not secure so the 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 one thing you could do would be to use a lightweight viewer for example notepad which which does only keep its contents in ram and i i know that for example notepad is a ram based viewer it doesn't write anything to the disk. The, the, the problem you still have, of course, is swapping. Because if the, if the RAM that Notepad was using happened to be swapped to your paging file, then that would go on to the hard disk for that reason. But, you know, if, but normally that's only going to happen if you're, if you're heavily using your system, you've got, you know, you, you, like you're actively paging RAM in and out, and probably if you just use Notepad to, you know, open it up and, and copy, cut, paste or, or whatever you were doing and closed it, the chances of being swa of, of Notepad being swapped out are minimal because, you know, that's the app that you're using and then you're probably OK. But it, it is definitely, I thought, a, a very good yeah, point. Yeah. There, there just isn't there isn't a, a perfect solution that that I know of, but having a really secure viewer uh, is an interesting feature for a product I kind of have in mind for the future. So I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, anytime it writes the file, uh, even though Word deletes a temp file when it closes, if it crashes, it doesn't delete it. And still even if it deletes it, it's still on the hard drive. Uh, yep. And in fact, you might even overwrite it and it'd be in Slack space. I mean, it still exists. So as soon as yep. it's written, you're in trouble. That's one of the reasons PGP has a secure viewer. Ah, so, do they? Yeah. So when you uh, unencrypt a PGP email message, you can have it open in a secure viewer that is stored in RAM, never writes to disk, and I think they overwrite the RAM. That that's the whole idea is a, is that for this reason, you can view it, but you view it securely. 
Steve Coakley in Phoenix wonders about a site-to-site tracking blocker. Steve, I've noticed that if I search for an item on Amazon or Google and then leave and go to different sites that ads for this exact item I was searching for keep following me and showing up everywhere I go. Horrors. That seems pretty creepy. Well, all right. I wonder if there's a... (laughs) It's not exactly like a doll chasing you. I wonder if there's a privacy setting to turn off that kind of tracking. I'm not even sure where to start looking, though. If I use an ad blocker, will the ads still be there, but I just won't see them? I want them to stop altogether, even if I can't see them, says Steve. Well, we, of course, we stepped into this with our recent dialogues about tracking. I just wanted to make sure that Steve knew that probably just disabling third-party cookies will solve that problem and definitely give it a try. All web browsers give you the option of turning off third-party cookies, and that probably solves the problem. So, you know, this is a perfect example of of what third-party cookies enable, and browsers all let you turn them off. So that's all you have to do. Question three, Adam Forney or Forney in Waterloo, Canada, adds a bit more salt to his hash. Steve, I just heard your response regarding a question which discussed the issues with a database containing both hashes and salts stored in the same database. In this case, I'm guessing that the primary reason the admins chose to use unique salts for each user is to thwart pre-computer or pre-computation attacks. For instance, uh, rainbow tables. Each salt effectively gives a new hashing function. With this threat model, storing salts and hashes in the same table is no big deal. Generating a unique rainbow table for each user is at least as complex as a direct brute force attack. Says Adam Forney, PhD candidate. Waterloo, Canada. Right. I um, I wanted to, you know, several people uh, wrote in about this, the idea of putting the, the salt along with the hash. And so I wanted to make sure that, that I didn't overly complicate this when I was talking about it before. Having a salt is way better than not having one because if you simply used a well-known hashing function – then exactly as Adam mentions, and as we've discussed many times, existing tables of for like SHA-1 and MD-5 and, and exist. And so it would be simple if they could get a hold of the hash to look up a matching password for that hash, for that hash function. Adding assault, exactly as Adam says, dramatically increases the security because by essentially you're scrambling individually scrambling each instance of the use of the hash function per user so that's a much better thing to do now storing them together is the question and yes storing them together is not as secure as storing them apart but so so store them apart if you can but if you can't, it's better to have a salt than not to have one. So it's again, it's it's that traditional uh, trade-off between convenience and security. If you know it's less convenient to have the hash somewhere, to have the salt somewhere else, you have to go get it and then use it to figure out if the password's correct or not. And you want to keep that out of the hacker's hands. Whereas presumably they could get to the hash. Of course, you want to keep everything out of the hacker's hands if you can. So anyway. I think think that issue is settled. Question four, Sunil Joshi in Chicago, Illinois. He wonders about SSL keys bigger than 2048. 
During the uh, feedback Q&A last time, you mentioned that the longest RSA public key that had been factored was 768 bits. And we currently use 1024 or 2048 bits for higher security. I understand that every one bit increases the complexity exponentially. However, this is true only until very advanced computational devices are invented. It's only with the current processing power it'll take an inhumanly long time to factor a 2048-bit key or even a 1024-bit key. But why not stop worrying about where the edge is in this cat-and-mouse game and generate SSL keys that are way bigger than 2048? What, what about 4096 or 8192? Isn't the key generation merely a computational process? What's stopping us from making the keys as long as possible? I'm sure there's some concern or limitation I'm not aware of. Could you throw some light on it? And thanks for making the Security Now show. I cannot wait for it every week. Sunil Joshi. So, yeah, I wanted to make sure about this because I've seen this question also pop up a lot. Um, It's true that computing the public key using a pair of hopefully very randomly generated primes, we understand now that that's that's more easily said than apparently done in our industry, that's a one-time process to create the public and private key pair. And so, sure, you could do that to any arbitrary bit length. The cost, though, is in every time it's used. Um, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there's it's about five times more computationally expensive to, to use a 2048-bit key over 1024-bit key, and that approximate ratio continues. So it would be five, about five times harder to use 4096 and five times harder than that to use 8192. So you start multiplying those fives, you know, two fives gives you 25 and another one gives you 125. So now it's 125 times harder to use an eight, an 8192-bit key than a 1024. In certain applications, that's just going to be a deal breaker. You know, you've got a low-powered processor in a, in, in a smart card or, or, you know, a heavily loaded uh, server that is, that is now switched over to using SSL all the time, imposing 125 times the, the connection overhead for negotiating an SSL um, dialogue, a, a handshake, that becomes a problem. And here's the point. Yeah, it does mean we never have to worry about security ever again, but what we've got is massive overkill. And it's massive overkill that we're paying for needlessly every single time we use it. So the fact is today, 1024 is plenty strong. We, As far as we know, we haven't even come close to factoring that. Uh, even that the the 768 bit factorization was much easier than 1024, and we are moving to 2048, which is radically harder to factor. So the point is, we really, really have enough security, and there's just no reason to throw away all that computation time without getting any real security benefit in return. Once you've got, I mean, really enough security. Anything more is just wasted time. Moving along to question five from Ron Kerr in New Hampshire. 
He wonders about determining the physical location of an IP address. Stephen Leo, on a recent Tech News Today, they were discussing the lawsuit brought against the cloud-based TV service Aereo. One of Aereo's legal positions is that their services are restricted to New York City customers only. I'm a developer by trade and understand the basics of networking, and I don't ever recall any specification talking about embedding the physical location of the machine attached to an IP address. I'm assuming that Aereo isn't lying to the public, so my question is, how do they know that my uh, IP comes from a computer in New York and not Tokyo? I appreciate the work on the show. Look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks, Ron. Um, that's a really good point. Um, there, it, 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 okay, we know what IP addresses are. IP addresses are hierarchical in nature. That is, big ISPs get big chunks of IP space. For example, level three has all of the four dot space. And HP had famously had, I think it was like 14 dot and 15 dot. They were really greedy because they were involved in the Internet in the beginning and had much more space than they were ever going to use. And the, the, the good people have been giving back IP space that they don't need. Many universities also got huge chunks of IP space that they never used. And they, they've been giving it back as our IP space is becoming more as the IPv4 IP space is becoming more depleted. So the point is that that the IP is used for routing and there are there have been attempts to geolocate based on IP. So for example, if you know you're a Cox cable user, you can maybe do reverse DNS on the IP and see what the DNS says and that can give you a clue or there are just there are forward indexes that say IPs in this range are in you know this region of Southern California. IPs in this range are in this region of Northern California. The point is they tend to be very inaccurate. They're you know at least the closer you try to get. I know the block I have here in Southern California is identified by these various services as being well away from me, nor up in Northern California. So it's not very accurate. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But, but all they Ron really is right. know is who your internet service provider is. Yes, that they could definitely determine. So if you had a regional ISP, right. then you could presume that all the IPs they own are going to be serviced within that region. That might be easier um, in New York City because the uh, primary ISP, Cablevision, only works in Manhattan, Long Island. It, it's a it is a regional provider. Right. So, but you know, I, do they do they say that it's IP addresses? I mean, I bet you they have credit card information too. If these people are customers, well, and it is also the case. Uh, although Ron didn't ask, as I mentioned before, uh, reverse DNS often is a treasure trove. You you ask ah. for the DNS IP, the DNS of the IP, and it'll say, like for example, for on my cable modem is oc.oc.cox.net, oh, Orange County. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an imperfect science at best. Yep. But more can be deduced than one might, might think. Yeah, that's true. Charles Hill in uh, Washington, D.C. observes that IPs can't replace host names. Dang it! In a recent episode, you discussed what happens if DNS were to go down or be attacked. Some people suggest, well, just use the IP address to get somewhere. But you might want to mention that for the millions of shared hosting sites, that will not work. 
So on behalf of Charles and all the people, everybody our, various, that, huh? <laughs> our very astute listeners right. who said, ah, Steve, uh, you know, you can't. Remember that what, what they're talking about, and they were all right, is that many, many hosting providers have many fewer IPs than they have domains that they host. So when you look up, for example, you know, my own site, I'm making that up, myownsite.com, it may give you an IP that's the same as yourownsite.com. So both of those domain names point to the same IP. The, the way the server disambiguates, I love it when I can use that word, the, disambiguates those two is that in the individual request, the, the individual web browsers asking for those two different domains all make a TCP connection to the same IP address. But in the, in the request headers, underneath, you know, in as part of the URL, there's a host header. And so one of the host headers will say myowndomain.com. The other one will say yourowndomain.com. So that tells the server which directory, essentially, to serve that request from. And the server's broken down into all the domains with different host names that share the same IP. So clearly, if we weren't using DNS anymore, if we were using IPs, that whole model of using the host name to disambiguate the individual websites that are in a shared environment would not work. But so that's Charles, not done. You're, you're, Go ahead. I was, I was going to say, Charles and everybody else, you know, tip of the hat to you. You're but exactly that's, right. that's not done through DNS. That's done at the uh, hosting server, which disambiguates. Correct. So you could, I presume, there would be a way to use the IP address and then a slash and then the host name or something like that. Um, there must be some way to signal to the server that that's the, that you're looking for a particular site. Yeah, the only thing you could do on like on a on the spur of the moment would be to put though would be to edit your hosts file and put and do the basically ah, make your because a host little, file would pass along the information. Yes, make ah. make your own little private DNS. Right. Then you could put myowndomain.com in your browser. It would look up the IP, but it and so it would make the correct connection to the correct IP, but but it would think it was connecting to myowndomain.com right. right. rather than an explicit IP. So it would put a host's header in that would allow the remote shared uh, hosting uh, service to give you the correct Clever. website. Clever. So just modify your host file. Yeah. Instead of entering the IP directly. Although most of the big pirate sites have are not shared hosting. <laughs> so correct. It's still going to work. And I think that was the context for that. Greg Williams in... Oh, no, actually, the context was uh, March 31st, uh, taking down the Internet. That's right, yeah. Right. Greg Williams in Brisbane, Australia, offers a clarification about 2048-bit SSL. Asymmetric keys are only used during the negotiation, but not for the lifetime of the connection. That uses negotiated symmetric keys. Therefore, you only pay the performance penalty at the start, and the rest is not slowed down. Obviously, if HTTP pipelining isn't used, unfortunately, it's disabled by default on almost every browser, there'll be a penalty for the multitude of request establishments, but it won't slow down the data transfer. Yeah, I just wanted to toss that in in case anyone was confused about that. That is the case. Um, and if, in fact, I'll go a little bit further and say that thanks to SSL caching, you only need to negotiate the, the, 
the you need you only need to go go through the public key negotiation the first time you're connecting to a remote server no matter how many connections you then subsequently make as you're browsing around on that server because they they will verify that they still have this this SSL credential valid and there's no need to redo it so not only is your individual flow not slowed down but subsequent connections are also not slowed down it's really not that big a problem all right moving on to another question this is number eight bruce in washington dc says i've been thinking about ssl and wi-fi tracking love the show and all the recent discussions of third-party cookies it occurred to me that your own public key would make a nice nearly unique cookie for tracking tracking purposes right so isn't there a privacy trade-off to HTTPS? In other words, when I have a secure connection, I'm, I'm kind of identifying myself. Also on the subject of tracking, we know that Google and others have mapped Wi-Fi hotspots based upon their unique MAC addresses. Can companies also do the reverse with us? For instance, smartphones and laptops can automatically search for Wi-Fi hotspots. But when they do that, they share the MAC address, right? So Starbucks, for example, could keep track of my visits, even if I pay cash, based on my phone just kind of saying, hey, I'm here. They might, they might even be able to track me as I walk around town as I pass various Starbucks locations. I haven't heard of companies doing this, but I don't see why they couldn't. Thanks, Bruce. Is that possible? So the, so the first part of his question is is not possible okay. because he's got this backwards. It's it's the server that we connect to that provides its credentials to prove to us that it is the server we are intending to connect to in a, in in a one-sided authentication, which is what that is, where the server is authenticating, we're not providing our credentials. It is possible for SSL to be used in a double-ended authentication where the user would have a certificate that is being used to, to authenticate itself to the server, but that's a special case, you know, corporate environments, corporate networks, and so forth. That's not the normal model where we're anonymously connecting to an authenticated server. Part two, he's absolutely right. Um, it mm, is the that's case. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it is the case that all of our devices, our Wi-Fi devices, have unique MAC addresses, and they're known to the hotspots wherever they're within range. So, so in so the same do so I have to as, have, have do I have to have logged into that hotspot ever, or do they just sense it? They just sense it, and that's that, – I mean, so, when, so that conversation's going on. As I walk through town, my yep. MAC address is being announced by my phone everywhere it sees an open – or an access point. Yes, Or is it exactly. just broadcasting it? Uh, yes. Uh, essentially, in, in the same way that Wait, if you this had – This is good. Your, this is juicy. Wait a minute. <laughs> You're in, saying in as I'm walking down the street, my phone is saying – giving out my unique – and it is unique – MAC address constantly. Yes. Well, now, why are people worried about third-party cookies? <laughs> so then his supposition that Starbucks or anybody uh, who had many locations, maybe this is why Starbucks has so many locations. I've often wondered why they'll have a Starbucks across the street. Are they, are they a front for the CIA? They must be tracking us all. They've got a database uh -huh. to say, well, I can tell you who was downtown. Wow. So if you turn off the Wi-Fi, of course, that won't happen. Well, and let's step back a little bit. Let's remember 
that our cell phones are identifying where we are all the time anyway with with, cell, with cell, cell company to, with cell with cell tower triangulation right you know that's the way some of these location services work is you are here and it's like oh yes i am and we but know is, that uh, it, all the major carriers wireless carriers have uh, database portals for law enforcement where law enforcement can go using uh, yep. a uh, what is it called a pen pen warrant yeah, and, and how many movies is this now in now yeah. where we all know that your cell phone is tracking you and, you know, they'll they'll send their final message and then they'll smash the cell phone down and stomp <laughs> on it in order to keep it from tracking them any further right. or, 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 to, or toss it into the back of a garbage truck and now they're, you know, going right. off and tr tracking the wrong right. car. So I'd be more worried about that than anything But else. it is the case that MAC address is unique and uh, and that's certainly trackable too. <laughs> Bill, in, Bill in Michigan, who's a regular in our chat room, we love him, uh, shares some thought about the consequences of Speedy. He says, I'm getting bad vibes about Speedy. Here's how I see it. The third-party nature of advertising, sourcing, and ad tracking, being sourced by third-party servers, keeps the main site and ad servers separated. But when pages start speeding up, if that word gets coined, remember where you heard it here first. Well, uh, who will want to go to the slow sites, which link to off-site ads? The pressure will be on to source those ads from the host server's speedy stream. Wouldn't this dramatically change the way things are done? First thing I thought is, would there be no such thing as a third-party script cookie or resource? They'd cease to exist. Everything is first-party. In the GRC news groups, Alan Cameron brilliantly came up with another loss. The old host's file. Its effect will be meaningless. The problem is that the pressure is on phenomenon to keep pages fast... Some new inventions or protocols will be needed so main servers and ad servers get their content in sync so they can be just as fast. Perhaps this will be done with some sort of side channel communication. This has actually always been a worry, but the status quo has held it back. Now Speedy's pressure may make it happen. Do you see what I see? That Speedy changes a lot more than web page speed. Your thoughts, please, Bill. So what he's suggesting is something which has been discussed from time to time, and that is that here we're also worried about third-party things, all that a website would have to do in order to not have third-party things blocked is essentially funnel them through itself. That is, rather than providing a URL to a third-party asset, it would provide a URL in its own domain, which when the web browser turned around and asked for it, it would go and fetch that third-party resource and feed it back to the browser as if it was coming from that first-party domain. So Bill's exactly right. There is a way to collapse the this whole third-party deal. Uh, and Alan was right that, you know, right now people, for example, have doubleclick.net blocked using their host's file, but this would allow double-click ads to sneak in as a first-party as if the ad were being sourced and served by the server they were visiting. So that's the bad news. The good news is third-party cookies don't work either. That is, no one could track you if that was being done because your browser would just give back the first-party cookie. It would give back the cookie for the domain you're on, not the domain for the advertiser. And if we assume that advertisers desperately want to track us around the Internet, then 
they have to hold their third-party status in order to be able to provide us with a cookie unique to them, not unique to the site we're visiting. That's their whole deal. So I think that there's there's some back pressure on amalgamating everything through a single-party site. Probably we're not going to see it happen. And boy, what a pain it would be. You think you've got problems now, Leo, with, with your with, with your server. Wait till you you know start trying to pump other people's content through it and out to the browser. Oh. <laughs> Such an exciting world we live in. Ah, yes. Question 10. Richard Covington in Redondo Beach, California. He used the subject, curse you, Steve Gibson, to get your attention. And it worked. Yeah. Hey, Steve. Well, now that I have your attention, I'd like to thank you for the work that you, Leo, and Elaine put in to such, make such a great show. Additionally, and the reason for the note, I'd like to thank you for your decision to have Elaine make transcriptions of each episode. Having these transcriptions available has resulted in an invaluable resource, yet you have set the bar... For all other netcasts, extremely high. That's true, because it's expensive. Steve does that out of his Uh. own pocket, which we should talk about. But anyway, unfortunately, none that I listen to have even come close to your exemplary transcriptions. However, because of these high-quality transcriptions, I've come to expect that I could go to any show that I've listened to in the car, to either, by the way, none of our other shows either, that I've listened to in the car and either pick up a link or check out a subject that was discussed. To my intense displeasure, the information just isn't there. Curse you, Steve Gibson, for setting the bar so high. I'd like to extend my highest gratitude and job well done and look forward to future amazing netcasts. I've been a listener since episode one and a proud owner of Spinrite, even though I've been designing computers for over 30 years, I still find the information not only timely, but very interesting, Richard Covington. So I just wanted to remind our listeners, first of all, thank you, Richard. I'm happy that we have we here have spoiled you from all other netcasts. And I wanted to remind our listeners, because I often run across people sending questions or or tweeting things that are discoverable instantly by going to grc.com slash sn which is that security now page and we use google hosted um search and i pay google annually for the privilege and it's and i'm paying them more because people are using it more but thanks to the transcripts remember that everything is searchable i I, the other day i i didn't remember which episode it was where i explained i did that little a little snippet on what Spinrite does. And so I just put into my own search term, you know, what does Spinrite do? And bang, it was episode 336. And it's like, oh, thank you, Steve. You know, now I, you know, I found it. So he's thanking himself. I'm thanking myself. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm recursive, Leo. (laughs) No, it is a, it's a very good point. It's one of the real advantages that the transcription uh, gives you is that it makes everything in the, in the show searchable. It's really a disadvantage of, uh, Audio and video media is it just not searchable unless you do I, that? And uh, you know, it's a, it's expensive. We probably should do it for all our shows. You you, you have set the bar. We don't currently, yeah, it, but maybe we will. Josh and we've looked at uh, automated systems. They don't work very well. No, and and I would say too that this podcast probably more than others. Uh, you know, we're laying down foundational, long term right. stuff and. My feeling was it was always an archive we were building from from the get go, uh, as opposed to, for example, tech news today. I mean, I'm I'm not sure, you know, that that the stuff you guys discuss. I mean, it'd be nice to have it, but is it you know is it worth paying the price to have it? 
I'm gonna. We have three more. And we're gonna do them pretty quick here because we're running a yep. little bit late, but that's fine. Uh, Josh in Greenville, South quick. Carolina, says I don't have the I Love Anti Glare screen protector for my new iPad. I'd like to get it. I, I love it on iPad too, but they don't make it anymore. Uh, have you found uh, a similar product? Um, I love it too. When people see my iPads, which has the anti glare screen, they just go, "Oh, that's so much better." And my my only real serious pet peeve with Jobs and Apple is that they just go for this high gloss screen. So I wanted to, what I wanted to take the opportunity to remind our listeners that I have a separate Twitter feed, SG Pad. And it will be. It has been active in the last week. It will be active as I actually get the arrival of my pads, and I'll be tweeting some stuff. So anyone who's interested in following my pad stuff, I'm not going to clog my main SGGRC stream with that. Just over on SG Pad, follow me if you're interested. And and I will definitely find a replacement for the I Love Anti Glare Screen Protector, and I'll be tweeting the things that I find over at SG Pad. It's odd that they stopped making that. Actually, uh, let's see here. Moving along to uh, question twelve, our second, our penultimate question. Um, Dean Murray, Sydney, Australia, gives us a tip of the week. Uh, he says that you are very comprehensible when being played back at double speed, which you can do on many uh, devices, including. Any iOS 5.1 device. I've been doing it this way for the last 100 or so episodes, and it's made my binge listening approach much more productive. Productive, um, he, said, he said, I cannot even begin to imagine doing that today with what we recently heard is 400-plus hours of content. So he's got to speed it up. By the way, Tom does sound a bit faster than Leo and Steve. Plus, I've been told by some Americans that Australians are fast talkers anyway. It's actually well-known in cognitive science that... Uh, Faster speech is more intelligible. Yep. So check on your device. iPhones, iPods, iPads, all can play back podcasts at uh, one and a half or even two times faster. Audible also supports that in their apps. Finally, and if you are if you are stuck in traffic, Leo, you can play it back slower. In order <laughs> if you to, got more time, <laughs> so you don't run out of podcasts before you get to where you're. That's going. what I found. You know, we we debate how long shows should be. We're an hour and fifty five minutes into this show. And um, uh, I have found, I have learned that people don't care how long it is as long as it's not shorter than their commute. They want they want it to cover the commute. Jim Michael in St. That's my supposition anyway. Jim Michael in St. Louis, Missouri with our last question. Have you heard of Buffer Bloat? He found a YouTube video uh, talking about it. He said he thought it was quite interesting. We actually talked about it with Bram Cohen, the inventor of BitTorrent. And it's a big issue for BitTorrent Live uh, because Buffer Bloat really can up latency on real-time stuff, including Skype. He says, uh, I, don't, I understand much of what the presenter says on the video. There's some things I don't get, and I would love to have it Gibsonized for us mere mortals, or at least debunked if it's not real. Anyway, I thought I'd bring it up here in the hope you could explain this information. Thanks for the great podcasts. And that's next week's topic. Yay! We're going to go into the... What, what buffer bloat is, uh, where the problem came from, how well-intended designers didn't actually understand, unfortunately, the TCP protocol and the problems it is creating for us. Why it, you can actually get, end up getting much less performance than your connection can provide uh, right there at home. That's next week on Security Now. Yeah, I had no idea until Bram described it. And Vince Cerf has weighed in against it. 
Uh, yep. I mean, it's a it's a big issue. Yep. And yeah. we have what I love about it, Leo, is we've already paved all the foundation. We've we've all the all of our how the internet works series discussing TCP performance and slow start and throttling all everything we need to know in order to add this next bit of subtlety is in place so i yeah. think our listeners are going to have a going to get a good kick out of it next good. week good oh i can't wait cuz i kind of understood the issue but uh, but i and i'm wondering unfortunately the uh, stats about what buffer sizes are on uh, most routers is not published so we need we nope. need to cut through this Steve yep. Gibson is at grc.com that's where you'll find his uh, his great stuff including Spinrite the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility and of course all his free security programs and this show he has 16 kilobit versions available as we mentioned transcriptions as well a great search feature go to grc.com and if you've got a question for future episodes we do Q&A every other episode uh, grc.com slash feedback has a form just for you that's the preferred way to communicate with mr g follow him on twitter sggrc and a little ipad activity there at sgpad on twitter and uh, we'll be back next week to talk about many things including buffer bloat uh, we do this show every wednesday 11 a.m pacific 2 p.m eastern time at twit.com TV. You can watch live, but you can always download it. 16 kilobit versions from Steve in audio, but we have audio and video available in uh, higher quality formats at uh, twit.tv. Well done, Steve. Bravo. Thank you, my friend. On to the next podcast. Go eat some more meat. I'll, t- I'll, t- <laughs> I'll talk to you next week on Bye-bye. Security Now. Bye-bye. Security Now.